Hi, I'm Liz Cully, and welcome back to Cool, Cool, Cool. Each week, I give you a glimpse into what I think is cool and chat with a ton of people that are definitely cool. No topic is off bounds unless I guess it's not cool. Welcome to Cool, Cool, Cool. Gabrielle Korn and I share a history and many of the same traumas. A celebrated editor, writer, strategist, and now two-time novelist, Gabrielle is just lovely. Our paths crossed when we were both at uh, BDG. She was the editor-in-chief of Nylon, graced all of the fashion Instagrams, and she was on my last show. And we talked about her memoir at that time, but today we are talking about her new novel, Yours for the Taking. Gabrielle has the most soothing voice that like envelops you like warm bath water. Her skin is literally smooth like Chantilly lace, and she has these doe soft blue green eyes that will make you just say yes to anything she says. Uh, she's also smart as all goddamn hell, and it's wildly intimidating for me. So if you hear me fumble a little bit, it's because, you know, in the presence of smart, strong, sophisticated people, I tend to crumble. Today, we're going to talk about her new novel and what that process is like, you know, from going from a memoir to going to science fiction. Uh, we talk about representation of women, queer women, trans characters in uh, science fiction, and what is next for her. I'm trying to pretend like I'm a youthful, fun lesbian. And I went to Honey and I saw Arlo Parks, which was like cool. a really great celeb sighting. And then Meg Stotler, but like Meg Stotler goes to like the opening of a fucking like window. So she was there. <laughs> and so, um, and I just sat in the corner with Sarah and was like, why am I at like a nightclub on a Thursday? And I'm so tired, like falling asleep, like drinking water, being like, I have had one glass of wine and I, or two and I've had, I need to go bed, to bed right now. I'm really impressed that you, you even made it to a second location. Couldn't even believe that I was seeing you after 8 p.m. on a weekday. Yeah, pe people don't really see me after 8 p.m. I'm like the opposite of a vampire. Which is such a huge departure from you being it New York City person for college and your 20s. And I mean, you've really, you moved to L.A. and you were just like... You really, you really assimilated. I got soft. So soft. Do you think you could make it in New York anymore? I don't think I would want to. My feeling about New York is that like if you step outside of like the Whitewater River for two seconds, like the whole city has changed and you've missed it. And I just like, I don't necessarily think I have the stamina to like participate in the way that I once did. I couldn't have said it any better. Written like a true novelist. I <laughs> I really have a hard time going back to New York. I can't sleep. Yeah. I thought I had rigged the system when I went a couple weeks ago. I hadn't been in a year. And I was like, I'm going to stay in a hotel. I'm going to stay in the West Village because I know it so well. And it's pretty quiet at night. In the, like if you're not, obviously, if you're like out. 
Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to go home by 10 o'clock no matter what. And I did all of those things. But then I would fall asleep and wake up at three in the morning and hear a car alarm or whatever it was. And I was like, dude, I can't, I can't, I can't make it in New York, which means I potentially can't make it anywhere. But no, New York is so specific. I mean, my sleep strategy for New York involves like earplugs, white noise machine, and Clompton. Oh, you know what? I have a sitting right there in our bookshelf. I have a like a to go, <laughs> a travel white noise machine. Yes, that's exactly what you need. You need to like cocoon yourself in like a sensory deprivation situation. <sighs> but sleep is my favorite topic. I could talk about it forever. Okay, well, so important. I'm we- in a way better sleep health position that I was in years ago. I just had therapy an hour ago and she was asking me like, what's keeping you up at night? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean like the normal things, but nothing as um, hmm, complicated and, you know, for lack of a better descriptor, big as things used to be in my mind. That's huge. Yeah. And I read the Smithsonian to go to bed. Oh, great idea. I love that. Egypt, shipwrecks, I'm super into it. I was actually reading last night about this woman who um, was in her late 20s and she had taught herself in the 1800s the Aztec language. And she was one of the first ever like, well, you wouldn't really call her explorer. They were calling her an explorer in this article, which I was a little like, Mm-mm, I don't know if that's right. But she was, uh, she had like figured out all of these different kind of symbols and languages that nobody else had before. And she was living in Mexico. And anyway, very cool. Fell right to sleep. I haven't finished it. I got to finish the article. Put me right to bed. (laughs) That's why I love it. She sounds gay. I think she probably is gay. Um, I hope she's gay. I hope they're all, I hope they're all gay, but nobody was talking about her being queer at all. But I think you're right. I think living in Mexico in the 1800s by yourself, um, Exploring the pyramids, teaching yourself ancient Aztec language um, sounds pretty gay. It's giving attraction to women. It's giving men aren't necessary. Yeah. It's giving men aren't necessary. Um, You wrote a whole ass science fiction novel. A whole ass science fiction novel. Before we dive to like much into the details of yours for the taking. Yay. We'll take a screenshot later. Did you, is this like some, like a story that you've kind of imagined in your mind that you had been thinking about your whole life and like kind of it started to unfold or did it just come out of nowhere and you created the story? Kind of both. Um, I've always loved science fiction. It's, it's just always been my favorite genre. It's like why I wanted to be a writer in the first place. Really? Like what were you reading as a kid? Um, as a kid, I was reading like all of Octavia Butler. Mm. Okay. Like I was I was that girl. Um, but then like when I tried to write it, I didn't really have anything to say. And, you know, I'm not like a science or math person. So like what I loved about science fiction was like the larger social commentary and like the metaphors. And um, I just like 
I don't know, like I couldn't think of a big idea. And when I graduated college, obviously, I went to work in women's media and got kind of like so sucked into that world that it was like, I just got further and further away from the original reasons why I wanted to be a writer in the first place. It was really like when I was leaving Nylon, my first book hadn't come out yet, but it was done. And I was just trying to think like, what could I do next that would feel most authentic to like what I want to be doing? So I was like, all right, I need to just finally like try to write this thing. And I had started and stopped all of these like separate short stories And I started looking back at them and realizing that it was all kind of the same story. And like, it was just like the specific moment in time. It was like 2019 was the end of the Trump presidency. We all wanted to fucking die all the time. Like climate change was in the news in a real way. Me too had happened. And I think like all of these external factors coalesced at like the exact moment when I realized, like, I wanted to write a novel. I read recently that Gen Z is more affected via depression, anxiety, and anger about climate change than anyone else, which makes sense, right? Like, they grew up in a time where we have been talking about all of these things. I feel like Al Gore was like beating on a drum that had like no bass and nobody, you know what I mean? And whoever else, right? I mean, I grew up in California, so I think I was more exposed to conversations about how we're treating the environment more just because the Bay Area is kind of known for being one of the epicenters for, I don't know, saving the planet. Yeah, maybe that's kind of a crazy blanket statement to make, but I'm going to make it. You know, and so your book is not only, I think, again, you're right. It's like 2019. And then we go right into the pandemic, which obviously your book definitely like takes those themes, um, all of them very much together. But (sighs) do you feel like writing about this helped calm your anxieties about global? like climate change and the effects that we're seeing every day. I mean, if I read one more news report that it's like the hottest day of the year, I'm going to scream. Or do you feel like it through the art of storytelling, it kind of like harnessed all of those anxieties and that anger and that sadness that we were all feeling at the end of the Trump era and what a lot of Gen Z feels every day. Did any of that kind of help or did it heighten? I think both. Part of doing a lot of research into climate change is that like I broke my own algorithm. And so now the only news I get is like climate disaster news. Cool. Awesome. Great. (laughs) Wonderful. I have days when it's really hard for me to feel like there's anything else happening in the world because everything that's served to me is just the latest, you know, horrible weather tragedy. But I also feel like from that research, What's interesting about right now is that more people than ever before are talking about climate change and the smartest people in the world are working on it. And that does give me hope. And I think like one major takeaway I had from all of this was that climate scientists feel that climate doomers are more dangerous than climate deniers because climate doomers are people who feel that the climate 
is going to change and we're all going to die and there's nothing we can do about it. And so therefore they do nothing. The Mm. climate deniers don't fully understand the situation and therefore they are still minds that can be changed. With the doomers, they kind of represent the inaction that if unchecked will ultimately fuck us. Wow. So I try not to be a doomer. Yeah. I I I agree. I mean, I'm definitely I would not consider myself a doomer. I think also buying a house and I'm so like the second you and I finish, I'm actually like weighing. I need to go purchase some accoutrement for Thanksgiving, but then also I really need to tend to my garden. I'm like crazy. Also, you and Wallace need to come over. I have once the harvest happens, so I live on an old orchard, like a two, oh. 300-year-old orchard. So I have crazy fruit situation happening, but also plants. And I'm like, really into it. We redid our whole front yard so that it's native, low water, and goes back to the environment, right? And I think like some of that can be viewed as a little trendy. But for me, I've found so much joy in kind of like trial and error, trying to watch things grow, also learning how to not overlove something or underlove something. So it's interesting, kind of the dual side of the coin, like the doomers and then the deniers, but then there are like the overlovers like me. Like, you know, plants are like people. <laughs> they are, but they're also, um, I'm learning much more resilient and sometimes not, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Yeah, true. So... You also touch on what a lot of people talk have been talking about more now. And I think what's been more felt, especially not to keep harping on houses, but what has I think we in Los Angeles see crazy with the housing market is this like idea of elitism, right? And like privacy and private clubs and in your book. Well, hold on. Let me like hold the phone here because I'm jumping ahead. And I I told you before we started recording, I'm anxious about spoilers, which everybody pause this show, go on Amazon or wherever, Barnes and Noble, you purchase your books and either pre-order or order the book and give it five stars and give it a review. Because just like this podcast, it's incredibly important to give people stars and to give people reviews. It takes like three seconds. You can literally do it while you watch TV but it helps us immensely. Amen. That's like a, a, a mid-roll, a mid-roll advertisement. <laughs> Give me like the logline of the book. I mean, I could easily sit here and read the back of your book or the reviews so far online, but I, I, how lucky am I that I get to hear it from the author? Tell <laughs> us about yours for the taking. I don't know how lucky you are because I feel like I'm still working on my like one sentence pitch. Well, but- not one sentence, but like tell <laughs> if whatever, like tell us what the book is about. Like if someone was like, right. oh my God, I read this book and I love it. What is it about? Okay. Um, the book starts in 2050. It's about a New York City that has been decimated by climate change. And as a solution, the government is creating these city-sized instructors these city-sized structures called the Inside Project. And each inside is a self-contained, self-sustaining, weatherproof structure. And you have to apply to live there. And it's the only way you are guaranteed safety from the um, increasingly dangerous elements. And the inside that is in New York City is being run by this woman named Jacqueline Millinder, who's this like billionaire slash like 
women's rights activist-ish. And she decides to not allow any men into Inside. And so the book follows um, a woman named Ava who is accepted Inside. And then these two people who work under Jacqueline, one is her personal assistant and one runs the health department Inside. It's like a utopia slash dystopia because as the book progresses, you realize like, this is not really the feminist ideal that it has branded itself as. It's something much darker. Well, it's funny because the way you describe it, I remember you and I swishing our feet in the pool at Ash and Abba's where I looked around me and we had nothing but lesbians and women in the pool and there were like babies and everybody was happy. And I was like, whoa. What a great society. What a great party. What a great society <laughs> this would be. Everyone's like happy. Everyone's fed. Everyone's content. No one's feeling like weird stuff or I, you know, about um, or there didn't feel as it was like jealousy or weird shit or, you know, I don't know. It was great. So in theory, I sort of agree. Like, I mean, I have plenty of male friends and male identifying friends and, you know, people in my life, family who I love. But I don't know. Part of me would be totally on board for this kind of situation. Totally. And then you get there and what you learn is that the hierarchy is based around who's having children because, like, this is a future-facing plan and she needs to figure out a way to grow it and so like to incentivize childbearing people to have kids like they are given privileges that other people aren't do you feel like people behave like that now oh like yeah of course <laughs> i mean i think a lot of my like feelings about like pressure to have children is absolutely reflected in the book um but it's it's more about how like gender essentialism is really dangerous. And so like, even though many of us love the idea of a world without men, anytime you create a hierarchy along a binary, you're just creating the mirror image of the power structure that you're trying to escape. And that's the point yeah. that. Well, and I think it's interesting, you know, there's this age old rumor that queer women hate men, you know? I mean, I've had plenty of men be super derogatory towards me in, you know, as to why I, quote, chose to be with a woman or, you know, whatever it might be. Like, I wasn't pretty enough to continue to date men. I wasn't strong enough. I hate men. I'm a hate, I'm a male-hating lesbian. But yeah. it's interesting that you kind of, in some ways, give that, uh, dream that some people have, like, oh God, if we just got rid of men, especially, you know, men have not had the best PR since you started writing this book, right? I mean, I think men have felt, or they have felt like they haven't had the best PR. You see a lot of comedians be like, well, nothing's worse than being a white gay guy or a white street guy. Like, well, I should yeah. be gay, you know, whatever, these like ridiculous yeah. kind of narratives. But I think it's interesting for you to be a queer female writer giving this, you know, character their queer female ideal, but then showing not only readers, but yourself, but also the character that perhaps like 
that's not real and that's not what we want, you know? Yeah. And that like the problem isn't the idea of men. The problem is what men in our world have been given permission to do. And that is feeling ownership over women's bodies and being violent and, um, you know, all the reasons we hate them. (laughs) Except I actually don't hate men. I don't hate men at all. Like, I just, I think like the truth is nobody hates men more than straight women because they're the ones who have to deal with them. And so that's why the character who's in charge of this is straight. Right. And, and has this like intense backstory about men failing her. And then when you get to like the actual lesbians who live in her experiment, they quickly realize like this is a straight woman's fantasy about what it would be like with no men because she has made it so that like they all wear the same thing there's no makeup they're not supposed to worry about how they look and like the gay girls are like but like we're more worried about how we look now that we're like with each other duh I mean, in some way, I mean, that would be so anxiety provoking for me. I was like reading it. I'm like, yeah, I would be like, um, and then again, you know, you have all of those kind of natural like tropes you fall into. Like, I want to be the prettiest lesbian here and have all of the (laughs) lesbians be super into me. You know what I mean? Like, or even with straight women, they like want to be the prettiest in the group or the smartest in the group. I mean, there's always competition no matter what, even if it's drived by sexuality or just gender or like circumstance or money, you know? I mean, you just in the back of the book, you know, in the description, you mentioned like corporate feminism, which I love. Like, what is your definition of corporate feminism? And do you have an example of it? Yeah, I mean, so the villain in the book is kind of like this picture perfect corporate feminist in that she has confused women's empowerment with her own personal success. And so corporate feminism is like when you put a woman in charge of a company and think that a box has been checked and that that means that that company treats women fairly because you have this one woman in a position of power. And the reality is she's usually not given the resources she needs to succeed. She usually has to act like a man in order to be taken seriously. The women under her are probably not being treated well. Like it doesn't really solve anything when you just plop a woman on top like no so that that's what that means well and we're we're seeing a slight i don't know if reckoning is too strong of a word but you know glossier emily is now no longer the ceo i worked for a beauty brand that no longer is in existence anymore There were so many, I mean, there was the whole kind of debacle out of way that became quite public. You know, these, quote, Sophia with girl boss. The word girl boss always rubbed me incredibly the wrong way. I always- It's so condescending. It's super condescending. It's just, again, you know, for lack of a better descriptor, it's just fucking cheesy. It's like corny. It's real corny. The whole millennial pink girl boss, like we're gonna, you know, chat about why it's so, I just, all of it felt 
so thrusted upon millennial women and they took it. And they, I think in some ways, in an act of resilience and trying to reclaim power, they like reclaimed it, right? They're like, yeah, we're girl bosses. And like, we're gonna have t-shirts at Target that say girl boss. But I think you're right when you talk about corporate feminism, it's like a lot of these founders and and then not founders, but female CEOs that you, or CMOs that you see kind of like go to company to company, get plopped into these situations and they don't have the right resources and they do have to eventually raise money and they typically have to raise money from VCs and those VCs are typically run by cis, white, straight men who dangle things and make them work harder. You know what I mean? It's like a really, it's a, it's a, it's a really dark thing, but that whole girl boss movement is shrouded in, in failure. It feels like in a way. I mean, I think there was like a great girl boss reckoning. And so like in order to create a believable villainous girl boss character, I had to set the book 20 years in the future, 20, 30 years, because like that's kind of the cycle of trends. Mm. So like it would be believable that we would have someone like her rise to power now because the moment is over. But like the main characters in the book are the children of Gen Z. And so for them, like, they haven't lived through this before. This is new for them. And like, you know, I think, I think like things just repeat, like. (laughs) No, I mean, listen, you wrote one of my favorite articles that you've written. I think it was for InStyle. I should have wrote this in my notes that low rise jeans are just absolutely terrible for women. I thought low, I would never have to put on a pair of low-rise jeans again in my and life. And you don't. You don't. Well, no, I'm not. Are you kidding me? Yeah. My <laughs> jeans are so high up. They are like underneath my bra line. I yeah. look like my vagina is like five feet long because of the <laughs> zipper. And I don't care. I like yeah. really don't care. And, but I love that. I mean, and I know that was, you know, obviously I, a catchy title for but you're right like these cyclical trends i mean the y2k of it all i met mm-hmm. Coralie simmons over the mm-hmm. weekend and i'm like oh my god this is crazy like baby fat all that shit is so popular again 20 years later and you know in 30 years i suppose girl boss culture will rise again there's so much discussion about gender there's it i think it's a topic that can feel uh, kind of well heavy for many but also uncomfortable to discuss for many as well. I know even for me I feel like I'm probably more educated but also more willing to ask questions while failing when speaking about gender um than a lot of people. I think people get really nervous. I think people can mm-hmm. kind of say like Ugh! I mean I spoke to this couple in their 60s recently and their child is non-binary and they were like grilling me grilling me and one of them is like an art dealer i'm like it's not like you guys like aren't around queer people or like people that express gender in different ways like why are we having this conversation and at one point he looked at me he's like i i don't know i don't know why it has to be so complicated i'm like well because it can be complicated for a lot of people how did you feel because obviously you talk about gender throughout the whole book, talking about gender 
Like, what was the research like? Did you do any research? Like, why was it important to you to, to talk about gender in this way? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I felt like I couldn't tell this story without a deep exploration of what gender is. And like the whole, there's a long history in science fiction of all female utopias, but most of those books are really terpy. They're really racist. They end up being like pro eugenics. And so like, that's what I specifically, yeah, no, it's horrible. It's like so terrible. Yeah. What? It's crazy. But like, a lot of like the waves of feminism have been like that. And so what I wanted to do was take that trope and flip it on its head and apply a gender expansive sensibility to the idea of an all-female utopia. And so like this story doesn't exist without trans people Mm -hmm. who are like real characters and important to the story. Like it just, it's, it's not to me it wasn't a story worth telling so like i did feel nervous about it like it's not an easy thing to do to write characters who have different identities than you um and i did do a lot of research and i had incredible people read it and give me feedback um and i tried to be as thoughtful and careful as possible but um you know i think if the presence of like queer people and trans people in a science fiction novel makes people uncomfortable, then like, good, be uncomfortable, learn something. Yeah, no, 100%. You know, like, yeah. Science fiction is really, I I just think it's such a complicated, hmm, I'm like trying, how do I say this? Because I was thinking about you while watching Murder at the End of the World, which I asked you before we started recording if you were watching. And I'm like, how the fuck? And Brit, you know, she also she stars in it, but she also wrote um, the, the OA, which is so good and so crazy. Good. Like the OA is bananas. I almost like feel like I want to watch it again, especially having watched Murder at the End of the World. But I just don't understand how y'all come up with these, like as you said, it kind of when we first started talking very like it could it almost feels like you walk away from you're like fuck that could totally happen and it (laughs) is always like a a comment on society in that moment or what we've seen and in the future i mean you go back to even like 1980 i mean there's so many you know things where we're like oh my god we're living that book and it's like well yeah no shit because that you know it's not like this book was a soothsayer but we were commenting on something that was happening and just like put it with flying cars which shockingly we still haven't seen um but i'm sure that's in the works at some point <laughs> but you know like i like i did not set out to write a book that felt realistic like if anything i set out to do something that would feel so ridiculous that it's like almost a satire like it's supposed to be funny it's supposed to be like this is crazy but the characters feel really real and then what people keep saying to me is how realistic it feels. No, and, I would agree. They- I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, the whole world is melting. We have private clubs that you have to apply. There's also, like, quote, you know, government-subsidized um, 
services that you also very there is very much a barrier to entry there and it also is very governed by you know billionaires i think we very much saw that with covid19 you know and even access to medications and you know like I don't know. I feel like it felt so real. And I was like, oh, my God, thank God I have this So House membership. Like, <laughs> let me just go live, you know, in the ballroom, the honey. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, that's true. And like, there is some like insane stuff about billionaires like starting to come out. And a lot of Jacqueline's character I did base around like current billionaire culture, which is I read this article about how there's like a network of billionaires that believe in the long-term future of the human race, meaning they don't care about things like climate change or war or anything in the immediate future. What they're focused on is billions of years into the future and populating the universe. And so that's why some of them are having as many children as possible and not Mm. investing in climate change because they think that like, they are superior and therefore the ideal situation is for like everybody to die but their relatives and then they will like repop blah 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 so elon musk with his 13 children literally elon and so i i did put a lot of that into jacqueline because like you know i I was gonna ask i mean i didn't want to put you on the spot and be like was there any particular billionaire because i know some female billionaires that you could have based it on but I wasn't yeah, sure. she's kind of like Elon plus like every bad boss I've ever had. I'm dying. That is Not hilarious. Nearly. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. That's hilarious. Uh, what about your other characters in the book? Like Ava, like who uh, did you base your characters on anybody in your life? And are you... Not fearful, but are you anticipating them seeing themselves in those characters when they read it? Thank God they're all their own people. Um, There is one character, Orchid, who um, originally I had kind of dumped all of my like ex-girlfriend trauma onto. And I accidentally made her like really unlikable. Like I had her doing and saying just like all the worst things that like girls have ever done and said to me. And then the feedback was just like, do you want people to root for her or not? And so (laughs) then I had to like really do a major revision and I ended up making her like a lot more like me, honestly. Like I put a lot of my own feelings into her and like the point of that character becomes like you think that she is one thing and then you find out that she's actually like, you know, very sensitive and very scared and very tender. And like, that's kind of how I got around her being you know, a toxic mask. Well, you've written about yourself, your first novel, memoir, Everybody Else is Perfect, was deeply triggering for me being that I am a... No, it's fine. I mean, it was wonderful. I would like meet people or I would know people and I was like, you guys gotta fucking read this book. I was like, because, you know, especially I think there is this unique experience, again, being millennial women working in kind of the like major digital first time of, you know, female geared media being queer and having like, you know, some ED issue. Like I was like, who is this person? 
I know I saw her on Slack, but holy shit. You know what I mean? I was just dying. But did you feel like because you sort of gave us your everything in your debut that for this book, I mean, I know you gave Orchid some of your sensibility and some of your personality, but did you feel like, okay, like written about myself enough, I need like to dive it like headfirst into just somebody, anything else or... Did you you know, weirdly, yours for the taking feels like a lot more of a vulnerable project than everybody really? else. Yeah, because like when you write about yourself, it's like you're assessing like the sum total events of your life. And your job is to find the most compelling narrative out of the true things that happened. When you're writing a novel, you're like, here's this like weird secret dark corner of my brain. And if I didn't put this on a page, nobody would know about it. And now it's like, oh, everybody knows how fucking weird I am. Because <laughs> I wrote this weird science fiction book. And so I it's like, like, love it. It's no. scary in a different way. <laughs> no, I think it's more like, okay, I'm going to change this story okay. for you. I think it's more like, I gave you all the opportunity to look inside my life in my first memoir or my memoir and um, what a badass I've been and how many things I've overcome and how hard I've worked and how I have, you know, through my vulnerability, given other people a platform to, you know, work in the industry, have their stories shared. Okay. Then I'm fucking real artistic, smart, innovative, different, multifaceted. I'm layered. I'm deep and creative. And here's a fucking science fiction novel because not really anybody, nobody's just throwing out science fiction novels and publishing them. Thank you. Let's go with that. (laughs) I'm like, what? I'm like, what? In how, well, that's why I had asked you previously, because I think if you are in any kind of creative art, or maybe not, maybe not even in creative arts, but if you grew up loving stories or loving film or television, mm-hmm. you can kind of like come up with your own story or that's like kind of in the back of your mind. I'll give you an example. My dear friend, Bonnie McKee who's the best, who's a singer-songwriter. She's written like every fucking song for Katy Perry, Kesha, wildly talented. She put out her album, yeah, 2019, and there is a song on it called Easy. And it's so good. I have texted her and looked like a complete like loser freak a million times about this. But anytime, actually, I'm in New York, I will listen to that song, and I have this like cinematic, I mean, I see the story, I see the girl, I see the music video, I see it all. It's like a seed of a story that I even thought of years before. Like, that's why I think we have these sort of stories (laughs) in our mind if you're into that sort of thing. And so that's why I said, like, was this something you had even maybe thought of as like a child and you were like developing into something else, you know? Totally. What story do you feel like hasn't been told? That, I mean, can you even think about doing something next? Is that like a mean question? To, that's probably a shitty thing to ask you. No, like that's a great question. Okay. Um, there's a sequel. 
Oh. Tears taking. Well, there you go. Um, See, it's like I, it's like I knew what to ask. <laughs> um, I have finished your first draft of it. It will allegedly be done by the end of the year, and um, it's called the Shut Up this year. Yeah, this year, it's coming out December third, twenty twenty four. Wait, what? That feels very quick. I'm not even ready for it. <laughs> Do you? feel pressure to make this into film or tv or is it you'd like to or do you like the i would love to yeah yeah it's you know it's it's being sent around um i have like you know no real news people are still reading it but um to me i don't i you know it feels cinematic in my brain like i feel like i can see it really clearly and um yeah i think tv would be great i would love for it to be a series and especially since there's a sequel on like you know hoping that there can be a third um like i i feel like i can just kind of do it forever and you so, do with this particular storyline so the second book functions as both like a prequel and a sequel so there are two timelines one picks up right where yours for the taking ends um but the other starts in 2040 and it's a character that you don't really find out how she's connected to everything else until about halfway through the book i love that i don't know how you that's so hard to do this is what i'm saying you're like mm, this weird creepy part of my mind i'm like what are you talking about this is so <laughs> rad Thank i just you. i recently just watched the series called bodies on netflix have you seen it we got like 15 minutes into the first episode and then you I have was to like, just commit. It's yeah. not great, okay. but it's not <laughs> terrible. But it's science fiction y. It deals with, you know, catastrophe, no climate, nothing that mirrors yours for the taking. But it's like you hop it's around. Travel, right? What'd you say? It's time travel, right? It's time travel, which is dope. I think if I were given a superpower, mm, time travel might be on the top of my list. It's a good one. It's like a strong one because while you can't, I mean, well, it really goes into like why when you affect certain things in the past, like why fucking around with certain events actually is awful and it like derails everything and like one small thing and blah, blah, blah. But I think time travel is pretty cool. But mm -hmm. I think the stopping and starting is so interesting. I just, you know, it always does feel like in a lot of these science fiction, and that I would consider science fiction as well. And I bring it up because I feel like the characters were really tropey, like, and especially anybody that's queer. It's in with your writing, it just felt like obviously very important, but just a reflection of your life, which is like a lot of lesbians. Totally. And I think like that's one of my biggest frustrations with like how TV tries to be inclusive is that like there you get like one queer character on an ensemble show. Yes. But like the reality is if you're a queer person, your life is probably full of other queer people. So it felt more real to me to have a book that is about a group of queer people and how they ultimately find each other. A hundred percent. That's why, you know what I mean? I read it like as if we were on 4th of July eating hot dogs and whatever and like chilling and like 90% of the people there were queer women. And then there was like 
the lovely friends that are like the one straight guy who like went to Sarah Lawrence and we keep having yeah. the same conversation <laughs> every time I meet that guy. Um, and they're lovely. You know what I mean? But yeah. I, that's more normal, right? I sure. think, um, yeah. And I, queer people do still feel quite tokenized in film and TV. I think everyone's sort of trying to say that it's changed. No. And I just don't think it has. I mean, and I think, you know, L word generation Q was an example of like, do we really need something that was successful 12, 13 years ago and so specific or like, I don't know anymore, you know? And I, I look at Gen Z and like, they don't even care, like queer, not queer. I don't know. I, I think it's become in my life at least, very blended and and different and people come out later or whatever. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And um or earlier or their, you know, orientation changes or they fall in love with who the fuck they want to fall in love with. Like who gives a shit? Yeah. So you do agree that it's it, it feels quite tropey still in like modern TV and film. Yeah. And I mean having Moved to LA, working in entertainment now for the past almost four years after working in editorial. I feel like it's such a numbers game when it comes to film and TV. Mm. And it makes me really sad, but it's like, it's more lucrative for these streamers to try to represent everybody in everything because that gives you more numbers Mm. than zeroing in on a niche population and doing something that feels very much for them specifically and like they're just thinking about views and subscriptions they're not thinking about how meaningful will this be to this small group of people and it's like i i disagree with that way of thinking about diversity because I think that like when representation is specific, it becomes more relatable and allows people to feel empathy and like understand how connected and similar we all are. Um, But I think, I don't think that that's what the algorithm is saying. And that's why I think you have things like stranger things where you get like one of each and that's like a huge expensive show i like couldn't i watched i didn't get it yeah stranger things no i know it's like the lights couldn't do it yeah christmas i however i will tell you best party i've ever one of the best and rachel and i still talk about this we've ever been to was when it was like the stranger things season two they rented out the whole pier santa monica pier where we met as a couple for the first time and it was very fun any other genres that you're interested in exploring or is are you just like, I am a science fiction girly and this is like where I am? I have another novel that I've been working on for a few years that is much more grounded literary fiction. It's like, it starts in the early 2000s and it's about like a queer girl in New York trying to work in the music industry and like the complicated love interest that she meets three times over 20 years. I kind of, it's like not finished. I've been revising it forever and I kind of like can't do anything with it until I figure out like the journey of yours for the taking and like how many books will be in that series. But I'm definitely, I definitely don't only want to write science fiction. Like I am excited to flex into different genres 
when the time is right. I thought you were going to say horror, fashion horror. <laughs> Not no. Because <laughs> God, what a like reversal. Talk about like trends. I mean, Hunter Abrams and I were speaking about it on this show about just, you know, what a reversal and what a regression fashion has made um, yeah. <laughs> this year and how uninspired. Oh my God. Fashion is so boring right now. I'm going to say it. it. Oh, it's so boring. I hate how everything looks. I think someone should do the devil wears Prada, but it's the actual devil and it's about like a demon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just have to tell you, like, I just couldn't. I looked at, I mean, I know you used to go to the shows and do the whole thing. I just like even red carpet, like take the shows out of it. I am so bored. I am so bored. I'm so bored. I am so bored with fashion right now. I'm so bored with like Ozempic. I'm so bored with, I hate it. I hate it all. I hate Balenciaga. I don't like any of it. Even bad gal Riri, who can do no wrong in my eyes, hated the F1 look. I'm just I'm very angry about it. I'm frustrated. I, I constantly feel like we're being trolled. <laughs> like the towel skirt. Like, give me a fucking break. People break. are dying. Well, don't even get me started on that whole. I mean, that's a whole nother I was keeping it real light on fashion. I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's fine, no, no, I'm just saying, it's just so interesting. Like, I'm a, yeah, I'm just fucking bored of the whole thing. Who would you want to play your character? If you could, if you could cast it right now, give me like the top four characters, five. Okay, TBH, I feel like I can't say this out loud because I'm so superstitious. Okay, don't, then don't, that's an answer. <laughs> and actually, to be honest with you, I'm super superstitious as I'm super superstitious as well. Did I get that out? Yes, you did. Um, like I, I feel the same way. And also, people be stealing shit, so don't say it. People be stealing shit. I just don't want to like summon the evil eye and like want something in public and doom it. True. The only <laughs> thing I'll say is that I've listened to many a podcast and watched many a thing where people were like, oh, this person said they wanted X, Y, and Z, and then it like got to me. But I'm more on your level, so don't worry about it. That's a good answer. Everybody steals everything. I feel like yeah. I can't talk about anything anymore. It's the worst, you know? Yeah, Fashion's know. the worst. Thieves are the worst. But gay people are the best, you know? Sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. Well, fair enough. What advice would you give to a young queer writer now that you have two very different books under your belt in such a short amount of time? The only way to write a book is to write a book is the best advice I have. Like, you literally just have to do it. Everything else will come after that. Like, I feel like I keep talking to writers who want to know how to do it. And I always ask them, like, well, have you started it? Like, have you finished it? So like start it and finish it. And then go try to talk to somebody about it. Yeah. Like having an idea is a wonderful thing, but you can't really get an agent or a deal if you don't have a book. And my, okay, my second piece of advice is like, you have to have a reason for doing it. Writing a book and publishing a book 
is really hard and really stressful and full of ups and downs that make you feel fucking insane. And if you don't have a good reason to do it, it's literally not worth it. Like no one is waiting on your book. No one expects you to write a book. So like for me, it's like, I love writing more than I love doing anything in the world. And like, that's the thing that I have to keep telling myself when it gets really hard and stressful. Like that is my reason for trying so, so hard for this to be successful. For other people, it's like they have this story that they've always been dying to tell or like, you know, whatever it is, like have your reason and never forget it. That's good advice. Um, Gabrielle, I'm always nervous talking to you. You're so smart. I always oh like need to like just smoke a joint and read the thesaurus before we have our interviews. <laughs> no, Liz, I feel the same way about you. I feel like you're no so way, cool. Jose. Get oh, out of here. Oh, oh my God. I can't <laughs> Lies. <wear> Lies. <laughs> um, well, when can everybody get the book? I can't <laughs> wait really quick. I asked you a question, then I'm going to say something. <laughs> I cannot stress and I'm going to sound like an annoying mom and I don't care. You guys have to go on Amazon. You have to go on these platforms and you have to give people five stars and you have to write a review. Thank you. I'm fucking dead ass. It makes such a huge difference. It is like we live and die by pre-sales, by five-star reviews. I just had a whole, like this woman came to me yesterday and she's like, "Mm, your like podcast is good. I mean, you have like decent reviews. I'm like, damn, bitch, you're in the reviews, not even in the listens. So anyway, sorry, when does the book No, come no. Out? Um, it comes out December 5th. I will say Amazon reviews are important. Goodreads reviews are important because like oh. that affects the Amazon algorithm. It's all important. Great. So like anytime you read or experience anything you like, I think like rating it wherever you can like supports the creator being able to do more of that. Throw someone a positive Yelp review. Yeah, anything. Um I I also need to stop looking at my Goodreads reviews. Oh, yeah. Please don't do that. Um, The book comes out on December 5th. I will be going on a little book tour. So if you want to come, please do. The tour is on. It's all on my Instagram. Oh, we'll put it in the show notes. Okay, amazing. Thank you. My pleasure. I told you that she was very smart and intimidating and kind and had a smooth little sweetie baby voice, didn't I? Uh, Make sure you order her book. Write her a review. It's super important. Help us. (laughs) The internet is so big and so vast, and I feel like the Kardashians just take it over. So us little baby content creators need your help. Uh, If you're not subscribed to my Patreon, please subscribe. It's three bucks a month. Buy me a coffee a month. I would really appreciate it. Definitely trying to make more video for you guys. So any little bit helps and uh, throw your girl a five star review. I'm at like almost 400 reviews. I'm trying to get to 500 by the end of the year. Do me a solid. Uh, it, it would mean a lot to me. 